Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. As humans, talking openly to each other is one of the key tools we have to gain knowledge, to seek the truth, to foster curiosity, to exchange and explore ideas, to see nuance, to ask big questions, to defend individual liberty, to resist ideology and tribalism, to heal and develop, to glean insight, to learn from history, to change our minds. And in that spirit, I believe that each guest has important information and stories to share. This show is also a deeply personal project for me to learn, to grow, to reduce my own ignorance, to try to make me a better human being and a better citizen. And it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Peter Neufeld. Peter is a civil rights lawyer and the co-founder of The Innocence Project. During our conversation, Peter talks about how and why he and Barry Sheck created The Innocence Project, the importance of DNA testing in exonerating wrongfully convicted citizens, scientific and procedural errors that have been commonly used by prosecutors in convicting defendants, and how our culture might create a more fair and impartial criminal justice system. I have great admiration for The Innocence Project. The visionary work of Peter and Barry has led to the exoneration of hundreds of wrongfully convicted Americans, some of whom were on death row. The Innocence Project has grown and expanded nationally and has worked to insert a much-needed sense of doubt into a system that is too often too certain. And because of the work of The Innocence Project, hundreds of innocent people who had been living a nightmare are now free. As Mark Twain once observed, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Peter Neufeld. All right, Peter. Well, first of all, just want to thank you for the time. Um, I've been wanting to do this for months, as you know, and I appreciate you having me in to uh, your office in uh, in Manhattan. Uh, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Good to be here. I'd love to start as I try to with almost every person I meet to get kind of the genesis story of what brings you to this table, how you got to this position in your life. And I know some about your background. Um, I understand you went to the University of Wisconsin, got in a little trouble there, uh, and then went to NYU Law School. Have you always had an interest in the disadvantaged, the innocent? What, what was kind of the initial impulse for you to get involved in this kind of work? Well, my, my family was always interested in civil rights and human rights. Um, my mother was um, active, and she was the president of the American Humanist Society. Huh. Um, I would say that from the time I was four or five, I would uh, we would be exposed to sort of the great religions of the world to see what people had in common. Uh, by the time I was... Um, 10 years old, um, and some schools shut down after Brown v. Board of Education rather than integrate. My mother and, and father were involved in collecting books for freedom schools, which took place in church basements in the South. Um, when people stayed sit-ins at uh, lunch counters in North Carolina at the Woolworths, um, my mother organized a support demonstration, took both myself and my brother, to be there to shut down the uh, the Woolworths in, in Hempstead, Long Island. Um, we went on anti-war demonstrations before I was a teenager. Um, so those kinds of issues, civil rights, human rights, um, have always been a part of the family menu. 
you mentioned the, I think you said the American Humanist Association. What, what is that? And what, what does that mean to you in terms of its ethos and principles? <clears throat> so, um, so I, I uh, humanism in those days was called, um, actually, actually she wasn't head of the American Humanist Society. She was the national president of the Ethical Culture Societies yeah. of America. And uh, it merged later on with humanism. So thank you for giving me a chance to correct that. Um, she's been dead for two years, but she still would not like me to make such a mistake. Um, and the Ethical Culture Societies were a humanist secular religion um, where some of the members were uh, monotheistic, uh, some of the members were agnostic, and some of the members were probably atheists, but that that didn't matter. What mattered was um, doing what you could during your life uh, to improve the quality of life for the greatest number of people. Hmm. So I think it's from that kind of basic understanding and education that uh, when, you when you investigate the great religions, you really talk about what they have in common, not what the differences are. Um, and... Uh, you know, you're constantly trying to do things which bring people together, people of different backgrounds, um, um, people of different cultures, different religions, different, uh, uh, you know, socially determined races, that kind of thing. And when you were growing up, what were the issues of the day? What, what was the ethical culture of the humanist society? What, what were they interested in in terms of remedies for, for the culture at large? Well, um, certainly war was a big issue. Um, and the danger of war and the danger of nuclear proliferation uh, at that point in time. People weren't really thinking about global warming and climate change. They were thinking about the world being destroyed um, through uh, atomic bombs. Um, at home, the big issue was certainly uh, civil rights, um, dealing with racism in America, I think, um, Developing an understanding not just of of the, the legacy of slavery, but also the legacy of genocide toward uh, indigenous people to create this country uh, primarily in the nineteenth century. Hmm. Um, so those were those were both very very big issues in the family and at the Ethical Culture Society and uh, at my Sunday school. I attended Sunday school from the time I was. Uh, six years old till I was about 14. Hmm. And as you began your academic career, does, were those, those principles, did they resonate with you? And if so, where were you thinking your life was going to head when you were just beginning university, <clears throat> getting out into the world? Well, they resonated even before that. I mean, yeah. um, let's see, in junior high school, uh, I was the class president and, uh, we passed around a petition against the compulsory recitation of the Pledge of Allegiance with, from the, with the premise that one doesn't have to pledge allegiance, one has to live a good life, um, and that that was much more important than any words you uttered. Mm. Um, and uh, I was suspended uh, from school in eighth grade for that petition, and then I was uh, impeached as president, uh, not by the student body, but by the faculty uh, for passing around the petition. Um, I was later 
uh, thrown out of high school for anti-war demonstrations held in the parking lot at the high school. So, you know, those kind of, um, I thought, principal positions uh, were important to me long before I got out of high school. How much of that do you attribute to the enthusiasm of your own family for minority views or cutting against the grain? Was was that hugely influential in your own actions, or do you feel like you kind of had that self-generated? No, my parents actually never tried to never tried to overtly bias me toward a particular position. It was always their attitude to expose me and my brother to as much as possible and allow us to make decisions for ourselves. So I would say whereas they would encourage some of our activities, I don't think they were terribly supportive when the activities reached a point where we were thrown out of colleges or thrown out of high school. Um, you know, I think they would have preferred that not happen. On the other hand, they always respected us for being principled. Yeah. And then you go to law school. What's the pathway there? What was your thinking in terms of why that seemed to be the right journey for you? Well, I was worried. I had been, I had been thrown out of college twice um, for anti-war activities and for uh, a demonstration um, during the black student strike in 1969 at the University of Wisconsin. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I thought that uh, if I went down that path, I'd probably end up spending a lot of time in jail <laughs> uh, and unemployed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. And, uh, and uh, you know, I had to, to figure out a way that I could uh, do some good and maybe stay out of trouble. And I think I thought the law was one way that you could... Um, not necessarily accomplish big wins, but many smaller victories. Hmm. And so I think that's that's what led me to law school. Were you always interested in criminal defense work from the time you were in law school, or did, initially was there another path? No, that you I was always interested yourself? in civil rights. Yeah, and uh, I saw um, criminal defense work as an aspect of civil rights and human rights, not as an end uh, in itself. Um, so my concern with criminal law was much more about the reality that the, that the expression criminal justice um, was an oxymoron, hmm. okay, that there's very little justice in the criminal legal systems in this country. Um, and so there was always a desire to sort of use the law um, for some kind of strategic purpose. Try and find cases where the issues resonated beyond the parameters of the single courtroom or the single client's needs, where you could use the case as leverage to get more change um, than existed previously. Yeah. I mentioned this to you before we started recording that this will be the third episode for this show that is related in some way to the Innocence Project. First was with Mike Ware, who runs the Texas branch then with Anthony Graves, who was represented successfully by the Innocence Project and was let out of prison for a murder he had nothing to do with, and now we're here. And I'm curious to get your story as to what you saw as you began to practice the law 
that made you think an organization like this was necessary in the first place? Well, I think it's interesting that you couch the question in, I want your story. Um, story, accurately in that sense, um, implies that there could be many stories or many narratives to explain the same arc. Mm. Um, and that's probably true. It's sort of like a, um, a Rashomon view of the innocence movement. Yeah. Okay, so I could give you mine. Um, when I first got involved in, in the life of a public defender in the South Bronx in the 1970s, um, obviously there wasn't much time to think about bigger issues. Uh, we had massive caseloads. Uh, the charges were very, very serious. Murder, arson. Uh, sexual assault and murder. Um, we had ridiculous caseloads, uh, you know, that you tried to manage. Um, but you realize that the other side also had ridiculous caseloads. And if you could do your homework and, and file, you know, really well-researched motions, you could achieve much more for your clients uh, than if you didn't, yeah, because you could just overwhelm the opposition um, with that kind of uh, strategy. Um, what was really special about the law for me personally, and I mean it personally, is that um, there were many academic subjects that I didn't pursue uh, previously in college or in or in law school, um, but although I was not terribly interested in, interested in them in the abstract, when you have a client whose life or liberty is at stake, yeah. you better know what the hell you're doing. And so even though I had no background in science or, or, or mental illness for that matter, those were two subjects that were very, very important to our clients. Hmm. Uh, mental illness because... Um, there were defenses involving uh, insanity, involving um, uh, some kind of diminished capacity, that, and those defenses could, in appropriate situations, be very useful. But you wanted to learn more about that, and you wanted to learn more about the way it was used against our clients. The hard sciences became a matter of interest because um, very often prosecutors relied on forensic sciences uh, to make their cases. And since I barely passed chemistry, had a biology teacher who used to hit his head against the wall and never took physics, um, I was more than ready to open up the books and talk to experts and learn all this stuff, mm. which I never knew before. And I loved it. Mm. And I loved learning about it. And I loved learning about it in a way that made me realize that the way these sciences, social sciences and hard sciences were being utilized by law enforcement prosecutors was garbage. That, that it didn't have to be validated to be used by a prosecutor. It didn't have to be necessarily reliable. That the same kinds of quality controls that our society demanded before, for instance, a new medication is put on the market or a new medical device is utilized in hospitals, that is the FDA, um, 
the, the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Acts, um, the Medicare and, and Medicaid um, uh, agencies that review standards, none of those controls applied to forensic science, mm. be it involving uh, forensic medicine, uh, forensic instruments and forensic methodologies, or involving uh, mental illness issues. In other words, whatever some prosecutor wanted to use, if a judge who knew nothing about science would let it happen, it happened. Mm. And so it became of great interest to me to challenge the misuse of, of, of mental health expertise and forensic expertise in lots of prosecutions. And so I started doing that long before the Innocence Project came into existence. And I won a bunch of cases that went to the highest courts uh, in New York State, uh, changing the, the, um, some of the, the uh, mental illness defenses, changing the way that uh, uh, courts would adjudicate those kinds of cases. Um, I challenged efforts by uh, crime laboratories to use so-called sciences to prosecute somebody that had never been validated, that had never even been published in a peer-reviewed journal. And I challenged them successfully. Hmm. So I was developing more and more of an interest in, in the intersection of science and the law. Hmm. And the more I developed that interest, the more I realized that not just the forensic sciences, but that other investigative tools did not have a strong scientific foundation, namely the, the ways in which police interrogated somebody, uh, did not take advantage of the research that had been done in the social sciences about how one goes about getting a reliable statement. I learned that the methods used by police departments uh, to subject people to identification procedures were not being done in a way that was either validated or reliable. And so, so many of the investigative tools that law enforcement in this country used and that law enforcement in this country taught to law enforcement all over the world shouldn't be used mm. because it wasn't reliable. So I had a sense of all of that uh, even before there was an Innocence Project. Yeah. Um, what, what, what got us into the Innocence Project was that uh, um, uh, Barry Sheck and I were old friends from, from working as public defenders in the South Bronx. Uh, he left to go uh, teach a clinic at, at, at Cardoza Law School. Um, I left to teach trial advocacy um, at Fordham Law School and uh, and do other cases as well. I started doing federal cases then. But um, a, a friend of ours who stayed on as a public defender had a client convicted of a robbery and rape. And the lawyer was absolutely convinced that his client was innocent. In fact, his client's defense was uh, one of alibi that he had been at a Bible study meeting at the time of the rape and robbery, and there were more than a dozen witnesses, all of whom came forward to testify on his behalf at trial. But the woman and man who had been who had met in a motel uh, for the purpose of a, a of a midday encounter um, made a positive identification that our client, you know, Marion Coakley, was the man. And so after he was convicted, the lawyer asked us if we would look into the case. 
And uh, Barry and I agreed to do that. And about at that time, uh, in England, um, there was a scientist who was using DNA, not in the criminal prosecution context, but he had used it to help certain Caribbean uh, and other um, African um, immigrants to England who were part of the British Empire um, who wanted to move to England to prove that they were genetically related to family members who were already in England. Mm. So if they weren't related, they couldn't get admission to the country. If they were related, they could. And the scientists used DNA typing initially uh, to prove that, yes, they were related. So it was in, in an immigration context. Hmm. And shortly after that, they did use it uh, in a criminal investigation. And we thought that this case, Marion Coakley, would be a great case uh, for DNA because the woman uh, uh, said she'd been raped uh, by the intruder. A rape kit was collected because they collected rape kits long before there was DNA yeah. uh, just to show that there was um, semen present, okay? And they also used to do uh, ABO blood group testing, um, and they wanted to see whether the, the semen donor had an ABO blood group, which was the same as the, uh, the, the man standing trial. Uh, ABO blood typing was not that discriminating, but even though, you know, with that limited test, you could say, you know, it was the ABO type of the sperm recovered from the victim uh, was the same type as that recovered from the defendant, and it, we only see that in 20% of the population. So you're already ruling out 80%. So it had some probative value. But we thought that DNA was much, much more discriminating, and instead of ruling out 80% of the population, it could rule out 99.9% at a minimum. And if we went back and looked at some of those old cases where people failed to be um, eliminated using conventional serology or with no serology at all, and if the evidence still existed and we exposed it to DNA testing, we might be able to prove that the wrong person was identified hmm. or that an innocent person falsely confessed because of badgering by the police. Okay? And, um, and so we tried to do that in Mr. Coakley's case. But unfortunately... Um, they had no longer had the rape kit. They had lost it. And so we couldn't do DNA testing. But his ABO blood type was different than the ABO blood type found... Um, I'm sorry, not... His ABO blood type was not different. About 80% of the population secrete their ABO blood type as they express it in their saliva, their vaginal secretions, or in their semen. But 20% are non-secretors. And um, Marion Coakley was a secretor, and his ABO blood group substance was not found in the rape kit. Hmm. So they called a serologist who worked for the crime laboratory, the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, that worked with prosecutors quite frequently, and he testified for the prosecution that the reason you might not be seeing Marion Coakley's ABO blood group substance is because he's a low-level secretor. So he only secretes some days and not others. Well, 
Number one, we didn't see anything in the literature that would support that kind of conclusion, which was used to explain away the exculpatory evidence at trial. Um, but number two, we said, well, even if we don't have DNA, maybe we could prove that Marion Coakley is not a low-level secretor. And so what we had Mr. Coakley do, uh, and it was, a, you know, it was a very awkward and embarrassing situation, but um, Mr. Coakley had to ejaculate while a prisoner in Attica prison for many, many, many consecutive days, morning, noon, and night, and sometimes repeatedly to show that no matter what the circumstances were, his ABO blood group substance always was there. It was always expressed. And so we did the experiment. Um, he would go to the nurse's office and be given a stall and a test tube. Um, and uh, we proved that Marion Coakley always expressed his, uh, his blood group substance in his semen. Uh, and then we also showed that some of the other evidence that was used to convict him um, really did not mean what they said it meant. Mm. And Marion was exonerated. But working on that case really brought us into contact with the potential of DNA testing as a vehicle for proving the innocence of many people who may have been wrongly convicted. You mentioned earlier that separate from the DNA aspect of your investigation, there were tricks, there were procedures, there were uh, common acts that were done by the prosecution, theories that they would come up with uh, that seemed to me to be a method for the state to try to convict people. You were mentioning also that one of the things that you looked into, I think, later in your career was related to lineups and identifications and how those how that process actually works. What did you notice before the Innocence Project even existed related to state prosecution offices? What, what, what kind of acts would they do? What kind of systems were in place that would lead them not necessarily towards advocating for the truth, but advocating for okay, the weight sure. of the state against the defendant? So, you know, you've got to remember, we, we were practicing as legal aid public defenders in the South Bronx <clears throat> beginning in the mid-1970s uh, and the 80s. <clears throat> and even when I left the office, I was continuing to do some cases uh, into the 90s. Um, you know, that's when the, the, the really racist war on drugs uh, was invented. And uh, the police presence, particularly in communities of color in large cities like New York, was simply um, overwhelming. Um, kids would be picked up off the street with no evidence at all, and then other witnesses would be found to identify them. Um, instead of questioning somebody for an hour or two, 16-year-old boys were held at the station house for a day or two uh, against their will, and then finally would confess to crimes they didn't commit because the police told them, it's the only way you can get out of here. Uh, so we knew about that kind of thing happening. Uh, and we knew that, that those kinds of tools were used um, uh, disparatively toward people of color than white people hmm. uh, and disparatively against poor people than people with means. Um, and it was pretty horrible. And, you know, and you would hear 
the racist remarks from the cops. And, and you realize that the prosecutors were not neutral seekers of justice, but they were all part of the same team with the police. And, uh, and you realize that the medical examiner was the, um, the third leg of that stool. The prosecutors, the police, the medical examiner, and forensic experts. They all held up that same stool, and that stool was conviction. In your judgment, what were the incentives in place that led to that kind of racism, that kind of self-certainty, that entire apparatus that you're mentioning was in practice to convict people? What, what was going on at that time? Not that it's necessarily gone, but wh why do you think that that's, the system worked the way that it did at that time? Well, well I was relatively naive, and I, at that point in time, I would say that the short-term incentive was they had a massive number of cases and they wanted closure. So it was more important to close a case um, and it didn't matter how you closed it. It didn't matter who was charged as long as you could charge somebody and close the case. I mean, but to say that they, but the whole system of policing and, and prosecution, you know, is, 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 is the result of, 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 of systems that were put in place with the founding of the country. So you, you can't really separate any of them. Um, that's not to say that I had an exquisite, comprehensive understanding of those links. Uh, you know, when I was a young, a young defense lawyer in the Bronx, I have that much better now. Um, but I mean, there's no, there's just no question that, you know, country was, you know, founded on slavery, was founded on, on the, frankly, extermination of Indian culture and, 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 and Native American life, um, and substituted with, um, you know, European culture. Um, and, and those foundings have found their way through strains of the culture to the present day. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of the work that you were doing, and this dovetails into your comments about the discovery of how DNA might be able to use to help to exonerate innocent people, was to introduce doubt into the system, into the cases that you were involved with, or at least potentially introducing incontrovertible evidence, proving that someone was not guilty that had been or was on trial. So there's a difference between immediate concerns and and then a long-term playbook. So the immediate concern was trying to exonerate an innocent person who was wrongly convicted. Mm. That was the most immediate concern, knowing that people had tried using other methodologies to clear people who had been wrongly convicted but achieved very limited success, right? Um, uh, identification witnesses recanting. Um, police officers who had gotten the confession subsequently indicted for uh, beating the hell out of somebody. Um, but even in those cases, uh, or a recanting witness, it was very difficult to get that original conviction vacated. Mm. And one of the reasons it was very difficult is one of the prevailing um, themes in American criminal legal systems is the doctrine of finality. Okay, which is, and it's understandable in part, namely that um, 
you know, we have a direct appellate system where you can appeal a conviction. You then can seek habeas corpus, a collateral attack. But at a certain point, it's over. The conviction's done. You can no longer challenge it. And, and one of the reasons for that doctrine of finality was that if you vacate a conviction 20 years after it was achieved and you have to retry the case, memories fade, witnesses die, and evidence gets lost or destroyed. And so it's less likely that if the case is retried, you'll get a more reliable result than they achieved the first time 20 years ago. Yeah. DNA stood that principle on its head because DNA was so reliable. I mean, if an, if an 85-year-old woman is raped and murdered and semen is recovered from her, right, um, the perpetrator who left, the person who left that semen is, is a damn good chance that's the perpetrator. Yeah. So even if John Smith was identified as somebody seen leaving that apartment, right? Um, or they have a jailhouse informant who says, John Smith confessed to me that he did it while in jail. Um, if that was the original evidence 20 years ago, but 20 years later, you now have a DNA test that says that semen found in that 85-year-old woman did not come from Mr. Smith, came from someone else. That's extremely powerful exculpatory evidence. And so if the case were to be retried, you're actually more likely to get a more reliable result the second time than you got the first time. And so DNA all at once could wash away the doctrine of finality hmm. as an impediment to reopening a case. Uh, and DNA had a power to right a wrongful conviction, which was much more persuasive than a recanting witness, uh, than a police officer who got convicted of some subsequent crime, um, much more powerful. And we started, you know, exonerating people yeah. all over the country. And you and, mentioned you mentioned Barry's name already. And yeah. I would love to know that conversation, that time period between the two of you where you definitively decide, I assume at one point, let's really create something here. Let's Let's create an organization that's objective is to use these tools to try to help innocent people that we believe are in prison right now? Um, so, you know, Mr. Coakley's case was in the late 1980s. The Innocence Project wasn't formally founded until 1992. Um, we were involved in another case in the late 1980s that challenged the, the misuse of DNA because one of, one of the, I mentioned earlier that one of my main concerns when I was a public defender was how much of the science um, uh, did not go through the kind of rigors that clinical science and clinical medicine goes through in our country. Um, well, the first two laboratories to do DNA testing, almost exclusively for the prosecutors, were private laboratories. And no one was there to check on uh, their protocols, their procedures, uh, their match window. You know, things could not line up perfectly, but they could declare a match if they wanted to. There were no objective criteria, in other yeah. words. Yeah. Uh, and so we really got into that, and we challenged it uh, in, in a homicide case in the late 1980s. And that resulted ultimately in the National Academies of Science taking up the issue of DNA 
and trying to come up with really rock solid uh, quality controls and quality assurances so that as crime laboratories were created and the FBI laboratory was created to do DNA testing, that they would use um, validated and reliable methods. Hmm. So what would be good for the prosecution would also be good for the defense. Yep. And, and that, that, that came to fruition. Um, but the first couple of cases when we exonerated people, we did not have an organization in place. Um, uh, Barry did some uh, TV show, uh, one of those call-in shows, you know, where you have a few guests, uh, uh, you know, and those kind of afternoon shows uh, were very popular in the prisons. Hmm. So people would be hanging out in the day room and they would watch that show. And so Barry was on the show and um, he talked about one of our exonerations. And we were immediately deluged with letters from prisoners around the country uh, saying they were innocent and they wanted a DNA test. Um, I did a couple of uh, radio shows here in New York, um, and the same thing happened. The radio station started getting uh, letters that they then sent to us. And so we then started doing more cases, and we got a few more exonerations. And then we realized that there were just so many letters, there were so many requests for representation that we just couldn't do this any longer out of our back pocket. Mm that we needed an organization. And so we, we formally created the Innocence Project uh, in 1992. Um, and uh, after that, uh, uh, many smaller projects, uh, innocence organizations uh, like the one in Texas that you mm -hmm. described uh, uh, came into existence uh, to the point that we now have um, oh, 55 smaller projects uh, scattered around the United States and another uh, 20 projects in other countries around the world. Hmm. I have to ask because I, you know, by this point in your career, you're experienced, you're well-credentialed, you're, you have a wonderful education in your background as a working professional, right? Transitioning your life to creating a nonprofit organization to help the underprivileged, to help people that you think really need it. What was your thought process in terms of, just financially, I, I ask this in part selfishly. I have a lot of friends who I think are at this phase in their life where they're interested in shifting to work that is more meaningful than what they may have been doing for a decade or more that they've been doing mostly for financial reasons. If you can remember that time for you, was it a no-brainer to throw yourself into this organization that I would imagine was not nearly as lucrative for you as a young lawyer? Or were you feeling called to do this? What was your thought process around that transition personally? So I think we all have the same goal in life, which is to, um, you know, achieve satisfaction. Financial satisfaction has importance and relevance. Emotional satisfaction certainly has a great deal um, of relevance. And um, I can tell you about the first time I ever walked somebody out of prison who we exonerated through DNA testing. Um, he was a young man named uh, Tony Snyder in Virginia. And um, God, I, I, think it was, I think it was 1991. Um, and we'd worked on the case for a while. His mother worked 
for the U.S. Postal Service. She had taken out a second mortgage on the family home in, in Alexandria to get lawyers all along who didn't help her son. Um, you know, she took a second job at one point. I mean, she really worked hard. And uh, I called her up and I said, your son's coming home. They've agreed to exonerate him because of the DNA results. And uh, I flew down to the prison. And um, Mr. Snyder's mother was there on the tarmac. It was a small airport. You could do that in those days. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I came off the plane, and she sort of came bounding across the tarmac. And uh, and I'm not a, a small person, I'm, uh, okay? <laughs> But this this mother just sort of put her arms around me and lifted me off the ground, <laughs> okay? And uh, it was a great moment. It was just a great moment. And then the two of us going to the prison uh, and walking her son, you know, uh, from this uh, dank, dark prison, you know, into, into the day's light, uh, it was, uh, you know, it's like just one of the best feelings I've ever had in my life. And it's a feeling that I've never grown tired of. And every time I'm there for an exoneration to, uh, you know, to, to bring that person back to his loved ones, okay, uh, to experience that first meal out of prison with somebody, you can't buy that kind of satisfaction. So, um, you know, I, I don't believe I've sacrificed at all. Yeah. I think uh, I've scored big time, you know, in terms of any kind of satisfaction quotient. Uh, it's great. It's always been great. And and I don't want to sound totally, um, you know, altruistic. Um, when Barry and I started the project, uh, all of our work for the project was pro bono. Um, and you know, we needed to have another source of income. Barry was teaching at the law school. Um, I was doing some other cases, some criminal defense work, um, some civil rights litigation as well. I had stopped doing the teaching at Fordham. Um, and eventually, uh, we set up a law firm that would only do civil rights work. Mm. And uh, I think in part because of the reputation we had earned through the Innocence Project, uh, clients came to us. And initially, we, we did a lot of cases involving police brutality and excessive force. Um, one of our very first cases as a civil rights firm uh, was the case of Abner Louima, who was a, a young Haitian man who had been tortured by police officers in a precinct in Brooklyn in 19... I think 1997 or thereabouts. And uh, we worked on that case to get it removed from the state prosecutor to the federal prosecutors mm -hmm. uh, to go after the police that did this to him. And then we sued not only the police department and the police officers, but in that instance, the union, the PBA, the Policemen's Benevolent Association, literally had a boiler room meeting with the offending officers the day after it happened where they concocted a cover story uh, that uh, Mr. Luima was actually injured because he was gay 
and it was a self-inflicted wound in the men's room at a club rather than a police officer, uh, you know, uh, penetrating his colon and his rectum with a broomstick, which is what happened. And uh, we did that case, and uh, we successfully sued the police union for their misconduct and the city of New York. And after that, we did uh, many other cases involving uh, police brutality and police misconduct. We did a a shooting case on the New Jersey Turnpike uh, for driving while black. Have young young students who were all in junior college who were driving down to North Carolina State to show the basketball coach that that, that he should accept them hmm. uh, at the four year school, and uh, they were stopped by New Jersey State troopers about an hour outside the city in the rental van, and uh, three of the four were seriously wounded had to be helicoptered out to, uh, uh, you know, uh, special facilities to deal with people who have been shot multiple times. Uh, two of them almost died. And the police madly searched the car to find guns and drugs, but all they could find uh, was a Bible and the complete works of John Steinbeck because one of them was madly trying to do his term paper uh, in the back seat of the vehicle. These were good kids. And that case led to the New Jersey Turnpike requiring that all the police had uh, cameras in the cars and that they could no longer racially profile as they had been doing drivers on the Turnpike for the uh, previous several decades. Mm -hmm. So we, we started doing a lot of other cases. And quite honestly, we would be compensated because when you prevailed against a city or state or county government, uh, they not only paid the individual who was wronged, but they also provided legal fees for the lawyers who represented them in those civil rights cases. So uh, we were able to make you know a, a nice living mm. uh, doing those civil rights cases. And uh, that law firm, uh, which is called Newfeld, Sheck, and Bruston, exists to this day. Yeah, it's and uh, we do civil rights cases all over the country. Yeah, and for people that are hearing about the Innocence Project for the first time and are curious about its mission and the cases that are really in the sweet spot for potential acceptance by the organization, speak to that. What What is the overall mission of the organization? And it's not all cases, right? It's very specific types of cases that are potentially of acceptance to the organization. What are those types of cases? So so that's evolved. Yeah. Okay. So when we first started the project, uh, we had a very, very narrow focus. We would only accept cases where identity was an issue, you know, in the underlying crime. In other words, if someone said, yeah, I killed him, but it was in self-defense, that would be a difficult thing to prove one way or the other through DNA. Yeah. Um, but if someone says, you know, someone else did it, it wasn't me. Um then if there was biological evidence left at the crime scene, it didn't have to be semen. It could be um, uh, uh, a trail of blood leaving the crime scene if someone was murdered. Um, it could be if the person was bitten. It could be saliva on a garment of clothes or on, or on the skin. Um, so there were many ways in which a person leaves biological evidence. So we would take... Cases where identity was an issue, biological evidence was initially collected hmm. at the original crime scene, and three, it had to still exist. So there were many cases that met the first two criteria, but when we began digging in, we found out, unfortunately, 
that the biological evidence had been lost or destroyed in the intervening years. More recently, um, we have been taking some non-DNA cases. But the reason we um, limited ourselves to DNA initially is we knew that it was very important if we not only wanted to exonerate people, but we wanted to use these cases as leverage to reform criminal legal systems uh, with new laws and new procedures, that we had to have cases and exonerations that were bulletproof. Hmm. Okay, no pun intended. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, and they were. There were cases where the prosecutors had to finally agree, this guy's innocent. The police had to finally agree, this guy's innocent. The newspapers all said he was innocent. And those are the best cases to use if you want to get reform. Yep. Because they were un unassailable. Um, but as time has gone on and more projects have uh, um, come to life around the country, uh, they've been doing non-DNA cases, which are much more challenging than the DNA cases. Yep. Uh, and they've achieved success. And I think, you know, the, our culture has changed such that people are much more willing to accept the vulnerability of our criminal legal systems, that innocent people are far too infrequently wrongly convicted, that there is misconduct on the part of police and prosecutors and sloppiness on the part of people working in crime laboratories. And so, yes, there are people where we can't prove their innocence with DNA, but they're innocent just the same. <laughs> And so we're now also taking on more non-DNA cases. But what makes us different also from the other projects is for us, the policy work that we do around the whole country, not just in New York, is as important as the exonerations. So our policy department has worked in almost every state in the union and has worked with Congress. And so far, we've, we've helped enact 250 statutes around the United States dealing with best practices for identification procedures, um, videotaping interrogations, so there'll be a neutral objective record of what happened during that interrogation, of requiring discovery when a prosecutor wants to rely on a jailhouse snitch uh, as their key witnesses, um, that the forensic techniques that have been proffered by the prosecution have to go through validation studies, have to be peer-reviewed, have to be more rigorous than the ones they had used previously. All those statutory reforms are the result of the work of the Innocence Project nationwide. And getting other countries to sort of adopt some of these best practices has been part of our work as well. Incredible. Of the 250 statutes that you just mentioned, are there a few or maybe even one that in your mind, if we are to be a society that is interested in the truth and not putting the full weight of the government in the prosecution's hands, not being biased during legal trials, is there a statute that comes to mind as being the most important to you that you've been able to accomplish or are they all relevant and each have their, They're their weight? They're all relevant. I mean, we, we have strategic uh, planning sessions uh, every three or five years where we think about what are the key issues that we want to work on uh, for the next several years. And that's evolved over the last 30 years. Uh, we started out 
where uh, in the very beginning we got statutes passed just to say that after someone's been convicted, um, if they file an appropriate petition, they should get DNA testing. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, when we started the project, only two states in the country allowed post-conviction DNA testing. Now all 50 states allow it. So that became one of our first issues. Another one was that uh, after these people were proven innocent, that they should receive some compensation for the decades of their lives lost, right? They didn't have a chance to have a career. They didn't have a chance to marry and have kids. Uh, they didn't have a chance to have any of the, to enjoy any of the liberties that are bestowed upon the rest of us, some compensation. But once we got, once we got past those two initial uh, pushes, then there were statutes to improve eyewitness identifications, to record interrogations, to deal with jailhouse informants, to improve the quality of all forensic disciplines. Um, uh, all of these things mattered. Uh, they still matter. Mm. Um, and I think it would be foolish of me to say that any one is more important than any other. Uh, we have a very sort of holistic approach to this, and, and we know that our criminal legal systems were never very just. And will we ever achieve complete justice, complete accuracy? Will there ever be a time where innocent people are not wrongly convicted? No. Will there ever be a time where race isn't a factor in who gets prosecuted and who gets convicted and who gets a longer sentence? and who doesn't get paroled, and who does get violated for parole? No. But can we do things to, uh, to reduce the impact of racism? Can we do things to um, make the system more equitable, fairer, somewhat more accurate? Yes. So you never get to the end point. We'll never be done. There's a lot more we can do. And fortunately, um, we're beginning to see changes in the culture of some of these different institutions where people are more receptive to the kinds of reforms that we're putting forward. Yeah. And I want to talk about today because part of the point of this show is to try to have conversations about making the culture and the society better in some capacity. And I'm sure even with the 250 statutes that you referenced that have gone at, to attempt to make a slightly better or a significantly better criminal justice system. We're not there yet. What, what in your mind today are the big hurdles to trying to achieve a more just criminal justice system or a just society generally related to criminal justice? Well, one is time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was, um, I served for, um, three decades on the, on the board of a, of a major medical center here in New York. And I was the chair of the medical committee of the board. <laughs> and when we first started out, um, uh, the medical committee in the hospital would investigate unexpected bad results in the operating room. It's, it's one of our responsibilities. But doctors and nurses were very reluctant to come forward because they thought they were going to be personally punished. Yeah. And so everybody, uh, you know, dumbed down. Okay. Uh, but once we demonstrated that what we were really interested in was not punishing people, but finding out what went wrong so we could tweak the systems and reduce the likelihood 
of those bad results in the future, over two decades, everything changed. The doctors and nurses then started coming in. In fact, there was almost a race to come in and quickly tell us what went wrong, okay? Hmm. Or help us to make an inquiry into the root cause analysis of what went wrong. Um, because we weren't going to punish individuals. Yeah, we'd punish them if there was intentional misconduct. But most errors are not the result of willful misconduct. They're the result of negligence or carelessness. Or frankly, maybe they were unwitting uh, where you thought you were doing the right thing. But it turned out that we now know there's a better thing to do mm. through research. So once people realize culturally that they weren't going to be personally hurt. And in fact, that by coming forward, they were going to improve the society of the medical center and improve the outcomes for patients. Then their whole perspective shifted and people came in. Um, what we need to do a lot with the criminal legal systems is similar to that. We need to change the culture. So for instance, in crime laboratories, um, too many people who worked in the crime laboratories or who worked in ME's offices who interacted with detectives all the time thought they were part of, quote, Team America, unquote. We're the good guys going after the bad guys. And that's a bad culture. Uh, a good culture would be we're scientists and we don't have a vested interest in the outcome. We just want to produce the most accurate, reliable, scientific results. And so you want to get them from point A to point B. And uh, we've been working on that process, which changing the culture of the people who work in crime laboratories all over America. And we've seen improvement. So that's part of changing the culture. Ultimately, to get to your point, um, impediments, fear, huge impediments. Okay, if people's behavior is governed by fear instead of hope, mm. uh, if people's behavior is governed by me as opposed to empathy, okay, then you're going to have bad results. So as we move people from fear to hope and from selfishness to a more empathetic uh, expression toward other people, um, I think the entire criminal legal system will change that people will think more about restorative justice. People will think that, you know, sending someone away, even if they are guilty, for 70 years does nothing. You know, we, we imprison more people than any country in the world. You know, even more than fascist countries do, uh, uh, proportionately. Um, more than dictatorships do, proportionately. And we, and we sentence them for longer than those other countries. That's not a controversial point. That's the reality. Um, but if we can overcome that fear and that kind of hopelessness um, and people become much more empathetic toward uh, you know, their brothers and sisters on the planet, uh, then we're, we're, we're going to have a much better system because we won't want to put people away for 60 or 70 years. We want to give people a second chance. We know that when they come out, uh, we shouldn't ban them from elections. We should encourage them to be more active citizens. 
uh, and give people a chance, a second chance or a third chance. Um, you know, that's 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 changing in the culture in the way that we need to uh, in order to improve our, our criminal legal systems. I think many people would be surprised at the fact that you just articulated, which is that we house more people in prisons than any other country on earth, yes. regardless of the type of government that's ruling over yes. the nation. And I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on culturally about us as Americans, what it is about the DNA of our culture that is allowing for that to happen or is echoing from the past that is leading to the results we're seeing today? You know, that's a great question. And, um, I don't know the answer. Okay. I don't think anyone knows that answer. I think there are a number of strains and a number of themes that come to mind and I could be wrong or I could be right. Um, you know, why are we, um, why is there a greater sense of fear amongst Americans than in studies that have been done than amongst people of the European countries from which we descend. Why is there a certain kind of religious intolerance here that doesn't exist in those European countries from which the white population, the settling population came? And I'm only talking about the settling population because it's, it's the settling population which um, has most of the wealth. It's the settling population that has most of the power. Um, I don't know the answers to that. But, you know, um, that is the reality. Uh, why is it that, that slavery lasted longer here than it did in those European countries from which we came? Um, why was there a destruction of the indigenous population here? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the belief systems were of the people who came here originally that lent themselves to both of those insidious, you know, I think we'd all agree, just insidious um, aspects of life and power. Yeah. Um, but it happened, and it happened for a really long time. And why would it be that, you know, you said you're from Texas, that they wanted to pass a law, maybe they did pass a law in Texas that says that you can't even teach that in the schools. You can't make people feel any, you know, you can't make white people feel any, any at all concerned about the legacy of what those European settler populations did to indigenous, indigenous people or people from sub-Saharan Africa. You can't teach them that. It's very disturbing. Mm. And it's very disturbing that you'd have that kind of uh, um, cultural attitude amongst the, the more powerful people in a place in 2021. Yeah. So I grew up in Pennsylvania. I, I live in Austin now. I've been there for a few years. And while I was there, and I've mentioned his name before during this conversation, I met with Mike Ware who leads the his offices in Fort Worth, Texas, right. and he leads the branch in, in the state. One of the things that he was mentioning during my conversation with him was related to his work in the, I believe it was called the Conviction Integrity Unit in the Dallas DA's department in, I think it was around 2007, which if memory serves, was the first such unit 
to exist in the country. And I the think idea, that's accurate. Yeah. the idea of that, as I understand it, was to basically have the apparatus of the state try to self-correct themselves, or at least have some option for investigating potential misuses of their own power. And Mike noted during the conversation with me that he that that has spread, that that is something that has taken off to some degree in, in cities in the country with varying intensity and interest from various cities. What, in your mind, you're welcome to speak about the Conviction Integrity Unit if you think it's instrumental, but what are the other self-correcting mechanisms that are sources of hope for you as somebody who's interested in justice and interested in the truth to try, try to improve the system as it exists right now? Well, with respect to I mean, conviction integrity units, I would I would certainly agree with Mike that uh, that there are many more out there uh, than there are conviction integrity units that actually do good work. Yeah, most of them are are, are really sort of pathetic. Actually, um, there is a group uh, called Fair and Just Prosecution, though, um, that's comprised of people who have been elected to the prosecutor's job who really want to change the culture of prosecuting in this country. Um, although they're not really changing the culture, they're simply tweaking it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the whole notion of prosecuting people and then seeking these ridiculously long sentences um, or killing them, okay, uh, is, is, is crazy, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's not going to improve the culture long term. It just isn't. So conviction integrity units can do some good, just like exonerating people who were only convicted can do some good, but only proactively um, changing all these systems so they function in a very different way to enhance the quality of life in our society rather than, the, rather than destroying so many lives for nothing, hmm. okay, which is what the, uh, what the reality has been. So that's what has to change. Um, you know, I, I think the fact that um, the fact that people look, you, you can't really change until you first understand what forces were responsible for getting us to where we are. Yeah. You first have to understand the history in order to change the future. You can't do it out of ignorance. And as more and more people um, have an understanding of of the legacies of this country's birth and founding, okay, to the very present, uh, and I think that's happening, then there's a much greater opportunity uh, that people will want to change themselves, okay? Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, I want to, um, I'm very worried about climate change, and they should shut down the coal mines, but I personally am going to take 30 uh, intercontinental flights in the next year. So, you know, change really begins at home. Yep. So people, it's not enough to just sort of intellectually understand some of these problems. It's to accept the fact that you have to do something on a personal level uh, to be part of that change. Yeah. I think in my generation, the work of the Innocence Project is it holds a place in people's hearts like few other organizations do. Um, I just get the sense 
personally that there's a palpable love for this place and what you guys are up to and what you're trying to achieve. And I would be curious to ask you if there is a young person, not even necessarily a young person, just a person in general <laughs> who is interested in helping in some capacity, right? And there, everyone has different talents and qualifications, but what are the ways in which you would recommend people try to help an organization like yours? Well, obviously, um, the extent to which you can help depends on a skill set and age. So there are high school students who are really interested in helping. And uh, what I think, frankly, is the best thing we can do there is to send people out to the high schools to educate them about the realities of our criminal legal systems uh, and begin to... Um, you know, influence their thinking because they will soon become adults and they will be the ones pressing the levers of power. Hmm. Uh, and if you can change their consciousness, uh, you will change the culture. So that's what we can do. And we would encourage high school students. There are, there are high school chapters uh, of the Innocence Project in different places in the country. And we have a speakers group that goes out and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk to them and meet with them. Um, uh, for adults who have certain skill sets, uh, there are lawyers who do pro, pro bono work uh, for the different innocence organizations around the country. Uh, there are doctors who have consulted with us and helped us. Um, there are academicians who have helped us design research and provided pro bono assistance to projects on different cases. And I don't mean just the Innocence Project. I'm talking about the 55 innocence organizations, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, we're sort of the mothership. We have we have ninety people on staff. Yeah. Um, although obviously you're here while most people are working remotely. <laughs> um, you know, we have a policy department that can be on the ground in twenty five states at any one time. Um, the other projects are much much smaller. I, I don't know if Michael told you how large the project was when he ran it in Texas. Yeah. But I think it was fewer than the fingers on I one think hand. You're right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, there are people in different professions who can be enormously helpful. Um, but as a citizen, uh, you know, we have, we have people here who are volunteers and help us go through cases and look at cases. Less so us. The smaller projects rely on those volunteers more. Uh, we have a full-time staff uh, that, that does our intake and evaluates cases. We have several law firms, uh, big law firms, that have provided hundreds of lawyers hmm. who were trained to evaluate cases, and they do so, and they provide fabulous work. Um, I think you know, on a, on, a, on a very immediate level, is 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 understanding just how vulnerable our systems are, and not necessarily assuming anymore that if somebody is charged, they must be guilty. That if you're picked for a jury, um, that you should be very questioning and very curious, and you shouldn't simply accept the word of a prosecutor or police officer because they work for the state. I mean, you know, we used to see summations uh, where people who were innocent were convicted, where the prosecution put on their forensic pathologist who said stuff that just wasn't so, and the defense called somebody, and the prosecution would say in closing argument, you can't believe the defendant's expert because he's being paid. 
but only the prosecution expert who's a, a member of the state uh, should be believed. Well, the mm. member of the state, number one, is being paid also. <laughs> he gets a salary. He gets He's incentivized to get a promotion in part based on the convictions he's provided and the evaluations he gets from the district attorneys he works for. And there's this sense I was talking about before of being part of Team America. Yeah. And it's a cognitive bias. And the cognitive bias is I want to include this person. I want to help convict this person. Okay? And there's just so many erroneous results. Do you know, half of our wrongful convictions involve crime laboratories that simply got it wrong? They got it wrong. That's that's a bigger contributing factor than false confessions. Um, it's crazy. Got it wrong. And these in people the supposedly have a background in science. Yeah. When you say got it wrong, you mean the data that they then presented to the prosecution was factually inaccurate. That that either the data was factually inaccurate or the conclusion they reached was erroneous, or at a minimum, the probative value of that test was grossly exaggerated by the expert when he or she testified uh, during the trial. Yeah. Okay. In other words, they went the extra distance beyond what the data showed to help to help that team prosecute this guy. Yeah. I yeah. think I think that phrase Team America, I'd never heard that before in a legal sense, but I I wonder if that in part is responsible for the issue we were talking about earlier, which is this culture of incarceration that we we certainly seem to be living in still now in America. And I think for normal people who hear about some of these cases where there is incontrovertible evidence that get people out of prison, it boggles their mind as to how it ever could have gotten there in the first place, that how anyone could have been convicted of a heinous crime without it actually being true. And I would love to get your general sense on how common that is. You know, I mentioned meeting Anthony Graves uh, a couple of months ago in Houston, who was wrongly, wrongfully convicted of murdering a family in the 80s in Texas. Sure. And he was on death row, slated to be executed twice. And just by a fluke in procedure, he's still alive. Right. Um, in, it's probably impossible to really know, but in your judgment and dedicating your life to this work, what percentage of the population of violent criminals who are in prison in America would you estimate are probably wrong, have been wrongly convicted and are well, there? Well, any, any estimate is, you know, is just that an estimate. Um, and I, and I, I can't give an estimate, but I can tell you that other, uh, social scientists have done studies where they've, for instance, looked at um, all the sexual assault murders in the United States for a given year, how many were convicted, and how many of those convictions ended up having the convictions vacated because of newly discovered evidence of innocence. Based on those kinds of studies, they extrapolated that anywhere is between you know, three and five percent of the prison population are actually innocent. Um, um, if you look at that with a population of two million people, yeah. okay, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, perhaps forty or fifty thousand people who are languishing in prison or awaiting execution, who are factually innocent. Mm. Uh, you know, that's an incredible number. And clearly, most of those people haven't been reached. And most of those people won't be reached. And they will remain in prison. And some of them will be executed, despite the fact that they're innocent, because our system is so vulnerable. And that should be a wake-up call for people to want to do something 
to not make everything so final. I mean, there's nothing more final than a death sentence. You know, you can't unring that bell. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, most of the, um, all of Europe uh, has gotten rid of the death penalty. All of the countries that were colonized by European countries, okay, in Africa, um, oh, I'm sorry, all the, all the African countries that had originally been colonies of European countries, and it was through those European countries that they established the death penalty. Now, as independent countries that have thrown off the cloak of that kind of colonialism, they've all eliminated the death penalty, you know. But the U.S. hasn't. Hmm. And, 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 and that clinging to the death penalty is another illustration of that, that need to um, overly incarcerate people, that need to overly criminalize behavior, behavior which in other countries uh, you may be, you may have a civil penalty or you may have nothing is criminalized in the United States yep. with sanctions that lead to years and years of lost liberty. I don't know why psychologically that is. I offered some reasons before. It's extremely troubling. Um, I still haven't gotten back to, though, that other question you started to ask when you wanted to know, um, you know, why is this nation doing this? Why are they locking up so many people? Why is there this need to have such an aggressive criminal justice system to have this notion of Team America, right? And by the way, when we talk about Team America, it's, it's completely mis misdirected because it's not the best way to create a great nation. You create a great nation um, by being generous of spirit. You create a great nation by having a national empathy. Um, you know, restorative justice is a way to bring closure to the victims uh, of a terrible crime uh, and help the perpetrator to be um, uh, a better member of society in the future. Um, you know, brutal punishment and, and that kind of, uh, um, that notion of, 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 of just punishing for the sake of punishment it just doesn't make any sense. So hopefully, you know, that aspect of our culture will change. Um, part of it is based on race. Um, you know, you, you, you've, you've looked at some of these cases. Um, a disproportionate number of the uh, people we've exonerated um, are black men, or particularly black men who are accused of committing sexual assaults or homicides against white people. Uh, particularly white women, although they were innocent. So there was much more willingness to convict an innocent man, given that, 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 that historical taboo of the interaction of black men and white women. Yeah. It didn't matter, okay? Um, there's a kind of tunnel vision, which is a factor on the part of law enforcement prosecutors, that, well, we initially thought he was a good suspect for this. And so... We tunnel in on him, and even if discordant data comes in, which suggests our initial reaction may be wrong, that maybe someone else did it, our tunnel vision prevents us from including that discordant data in our thought process to see what's the right answer. Yeah. Uh, that goes on all the time in policing and prosecutorial services. Confirmation bias. 
Well, it's uh, tunnel vision is a little bit different than confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is, um, you know, you're, 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 there's, there's two types of confirmation bias. One is you're, you're trying to confirm the conclusion reached by a colleague or somebody else already. There's that kind of bias. Um, but, but this, but this, this cognitive process, which prevents you from actually looking at new information. Okay. Uh, one of the things that that comes from, it is a cognitive bias, or I'm sorry, it's the result of a cognitive bias. That's what tunnel vision is. Um, is we all know from um, uh, different cognitive studies that most often the information we receive first, okay, primacy, yeah. uh, has the greatest impact on us. Um, if you're given a set of numbers to remember, and they do that simple test with you, as they did with me, you're more likely to remember the numbers you heard first than the numbers you heard in the middle. Along with primacy, there's also recency, yep. okay, or which you're more likely to remember, but not the ones in the middle. So um, the information that came into your investigation at the very, very beginning has a major impact on, on your thinking about how to solve this case. And information that comes in much later uh, doesn't have the same impact. And particularly if it contradicts that information that was uh, that came in at the beginning, the human brain is much more likely to reject it, hmm. and and that rejection becomes the tunnel vision. Hmm. Yeah, I know. So do away with that, okay? Yeah. And one of the ways to do away with that, okay, that we're working on right now is we're working uh, with uh, the field of forensic pathology and the different people who do forensic scientific work. Um, very often, people in the crime lab would have direct communications with the detectives working up the case. So when a detective would send a sample in, let's say a hair for comparison, or a tire print for comparison, they would say things to the examiner in the laboratory, by the way, the guy confessed. Or oh, by the way, he beat this charge three times already. We want to get him this time. We've seen that in the emails. We've seen that in the letters. We've seen that in the submission reports from over many, many years. But why do you tell that to a person who's supposedly uh, objective, independent, and conducting a scientific test? There's no reason to share that domain irrelevant information with him. And so we've helped the crime lab set up protocols where that kind of bad fertilization on the part of law enforcement doesn't occur. Hmm. Um, medical examiners feel it's very important they know everything about the case before they even conduct an autopsy. They want to know all the leads that the police have. They want to know what all the other evidence is they've collected. And they actually have the audacity to suggest that whereas lesser people in lesser fields may have cognitive bias, may be influenced by this domain irrelevant information, we are not because we're doctors. You can tell us everything. We're above cognitive bias. Well, that's ridiculous because they're human beings first and doctors second. And none of us are immune from cognitive bias. I'm not. I make all kinds of decisions Okay, and some of them I'm ashamed of because of biases that I've developed over a lifetime on this planet. You know, 
and, and so we need to prevent that from happening. So what we're recommending in the field of forensic pathology for the first time is that they're limited when they make their initial decision about what the cause of death was and the manner of death to the autopsy and to the medical findings. First and foremost, they're doctors. And then they put that down on paper, what, their, what the cause of death was and what the manner of death was. And then you give them a little more information, like crime scene photographs, okay? But you still don't let them see the reports prepared by the police, because those are very subjective. So you let them see the crime scene evidence. You let them see crime scene videos. Uh, you, you show them other, other data from the medical history of the subject who died. And then you ask them again, does that change your conclusion on cause of death and manner of death? And it might. Hmm. And so then they document that, that they've changed their mind and what new data helped them change their mind. And then finally, perhaps, you may show them completely irrelevant data, but, but data that they're accustomed to seeing in their careers over many, many decades because people allowed them to. Hmm. And then you say, fine, now that you've seen all this other data, does that change your mind? And if it does, it's documented. And it should cause us uh, a, a moment of pause that maybe they're unduly influenced by non-medical information in rendering an opinion that we all expect to be fundamentally medical and scientific. And maybe we should change the procedures uh, by which medical examiners and forensic pathologists ply their trade. Hmm. You know, a major overhaul. So we're trying to now bring into the criminal legal systems what we've learned from these cognitive scientists, what we've learned from neuroscience about how the brain functions, to change the way that police conduct investigations, to change the way that evidence can be presented in the court of law, and to change the way that our criminal legal systems treat people in general. Yeah. So many of these procedures, it seems like extracting the major ideas of behavioral economics and the book Thinking Fast and Slow and applying it to the legal procedures that you were just mentioning. You also mentioned earlier about the 250 statutes that over the course of your career have been implemented as a pushback against um, errors, errors in judgment. And I'm wondering where you think we are. It's never going to be a perfect system, but in the graspable, changeable elements that you're aware of, is 250 statutes halfway there to get into a point where you think it's reasonable? Is that an impossible question? Where, where do it's you think we? It's an impossible question. <laughs> There's never enough, and so you keep on fighting. Yeah, I know we're getting towards the end of the conversation, and I'd love to maybe start as we wind down by asking you about how you would ask citizens of the country and just people in the world in general who are listening to this or who get a chance to listen to this at some point, advice or suggestions as potential jurors in a legal case in terms of the way you think they should be thinking or framing that job when they sit in a juror's box. What's the right attitude to have as a citizen who's potentially going to be given that awesome power of potentially sending someone to jail? Is it to think like a scientist? Is it something else? How do you think through that question when speaking to the general public? Well, so 
We want, we do want, well, I'm sorry. Um, the Innocence Project for years has been focused on trying to make the system um, and the evidence that's used not only to adjudicate crime, but to investigate crime more scientific, more, more empirically based. But what we've lately realized is that having evidence be accurate is not enough. You can be accurate and still not be fair nor just. That, you know, it's kind of like when you look at artificial intelligence. You can create a system um, for focusing on certain suspects. And you can come up with an algorithm to do that. But if the historical data that you're inputting in to create this algorithm itself um, was a result of racial bias, then this artificial intelligence that comes out that's supposed to be neutral and objective will be just as biased as when it was done by human beings beforehand. Yeah. Right? And so we're not just concerned with science and empiricism. We're also concerned with equity and we're concerned with um, racial justice. And I think that if somebody walks into the jury room, that, number one, um, they have to be really questioning whether or not the evidence was, that was presented um, was empirically based, um, would be of such a quality scientifically, uh, that if it was a new medicine they had for a rare disease, that they'd take it. Okay? Yeah. They better be damn sure, in other words, um, that it's reliable, that reliable, uh, and that there are no you know, adverse consequences or side effects. Uh, and then beyond that, they should really be inquiring whether or not this evidence was, presu- was produced in a way that was fair and just and equitable? Or was it the result of not necessarily racism or explicit racial bias, but perhaps implicit racial bias? And when I, when I say implicit racial bias, you know, there was a time in the 1980s where when I walked across the street, um, if there were half a dozen black kids, you know, dressed a certain way, I would cross the street. If there were six white kids, I wouldn't have crossed the street. That's my own implicit racial bias. Okay, that's... I'm not even aware I'm doing it necessarily or thinking it. Maybe I am aware of it. I don't know. Um... But why do well, why does the appearance of somebody on the train appear to me to be more threatening than somebody else, um, based on age, based on gender, um, based on other, um, based on skin color? Why is that? Um, and could any of those factors be playing a role in the evidence that's being presented to me in this courtroom? Hmm. And if so. I've got to go out of my way to prevent those factors from influencing the way I evaluate that evidence. Yeah. I have to like really go out of my way. I can't ignore it 
So I have to fight against it. Yeah. Before I ask you the last question, I, I just want to take a moment to thank you on behalf of a lot of people, myself included, who have a deep love for what you've created here. And for everything well, a lot of that people you have, created it, I know, but okay. you and Barry started it and it has taken off. Yeah. It's, it's created, it's a life of its own around the country. And, um, I think I speak for a lot of people in voicing that, uh, to you. you. And I, I, you mentioned the story earlier about meeting an exonerated person's mother on the tarmac and how meaningful that was for you, which I can completely understand how that would keep you going through the extremely difficult work and difficult odds that I know you faced in a lot of your career. Um, and I wish you uh, all of the best. And I think I speak for a lot of people in, in noting that. Last question I want to ask you is about the future of this country and the future of the criminal justice system. And you've alluded to this already during the conversation, but if you were allocated the powers to snap your fingers and implement a few changes currently that you see that are gross impediments to justice in the country and you had the power to be able to change them. Does anything come to mind? What, and if so, what would those things be? Well, I, I can't necessarily, necessarily say how I would change them, but I would think that in general, um, policing in our culture and prosecution in our culture um, is fairly draconian and um, and doesn't come from a sense of compassion, doesn't come from any kind of perspective of wanting to lift, you know, our fellow and sister human beings, but rather it comes from a, a position of wanting to oppress, suppress, and repress them. Um, and I think that we would, I would, I would work very hard to change both those uh, systems in our country, uh, because once we did, and we move them into a much more uh, positive direction, um, I think a lot of better things would follow. But, but, but bear in mind, that's just the criminal legal systems. The same disparities exist in housing, education, healthcare, um, and, 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 and some of the causes are the same, right? So just by snapping my fingers and, and, and undoing a couple of things in the world that I'm most familiar with is not going to un have any impact on the worlds that I'm less familiar with. Hmm. So I guess that's to say that um, I probably can't answer your question. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you've certainly helped dozens and hundreds of people in your life and the organization obviously has as well in in tandem um i really appreciate you taking the time to do this i know you're a busy guy okay. and we've been we've been coordinating for a few months but thanks for doing this it was wonderful to have this conversation it's an honor to meet you well i wish you good luck in this new endeavor and uh and hopefully you'll i mean austin's a fun place to live but so is brooklyn yeah so thank you peter yeah you're very welcome Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show. 